Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Thank you, Maria. I know everybody's been so excited about how like, uplifting our pre-sermon readings have been lately. Um, but can you imagine living in a time when in response to humanity's way of living, nature and all teeming life on and in the earth seems to mourn? Um, its resiliency to rebound reduced the patterns of weather and animal behavior frenzied. Seemingly aggressive in its anxious retort to everything that humanity is doing. Imagine living in a time when God is a curse, or one who curses anyway. A time when truth takes a back seat to opinion and passion. A time when zealous protecting of life, steady and social stewarding of life, and fidelity to the bonds necessary for life seem to be the least accurate descriptors of the day. Imagine living when the stories told are stories of the ends of life told to end life, or to foster fear and cultivate the anxiousness to control life before its end. Can you imagine living at a time like that? A time like the people Israel were living in when Hosea spoke on behalf of God, as the words that Maria just read for us. Oh, you thought I was talking about today, didn't you? Ah, I can see it. I, I saw it in your eyes. That's right. Well, maybe our scriptures tell truer stories than we give them credit. Stories true to our experience and not just the experience of ancients. Maybe, just maybe, these stories speak truth to who we are and the life we know more fundamentally than we're willing to admit. And definitely more than we're eager to submit to, as is the testimony of our propensity to neuter them through hyper-spiritualization or pious religiosity, to dismiss their hyperbole as exaggeration rather than a wake-up call, or to anachronize their essential humanness. No matter how foreign the ancient languages may feel, and they do at times feel kind of foreign, right? No matter how far removed we may be from the daily customs and cultures of the authors and audience, these admittedly odd to us yet incredibly ordered stories speak directly and concretely to our everyday life in the land of the living, even as they let us in on dimensions of life that often are just out of sight. And the direct, concrete to our everyday attempts to make a life, to make a life good, has been on full display in our meditation on the ten words. Of all the words and all the stories that we talk about, maybe more, there are none more concrete and essential, fundamental and connected to our everyday attempts at making a life good than the ten words. The Decalogue, literally ten words or ten commandments, are essential, elemental in their revelation of what makes life work and what does not. We live free or enslaved in in our bonds, our relationship to God and one another in the earth. One way or the other, we live free or we lived enslaved. When those relationships work, as we said last week, we prosper, even through the less than perfect circumstances of living. When those relationships don't work, we're impoverished materially, spiritually, emotionally, societally, and more. And there are few things more essential to relating to others than words. 
Words, as you might remember, are just as pivotal as deeds in creating and cultivating and making a life good for ourselves and others. Or as the proverb say it, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Or in the words of Paul in Colossians, and everything in which you make, manufacture, or construct life, in word and actions, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our scriptures assume that words have power. That words are a part of how we make life good or life not so good. And the ninth word is an acknowledgement of that truth. The ninth word, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Like the words immediately preceding it, the ninth word states the negative extreme of words' power. While words can heal and strengthen bonds, they can construct a life good, They can bring life to its fullest, freeing others. They can also destroy bonds and imprison others. In the ninth word's immediate context, the prohibition is against lying about another in a communal court. So, like when we read the first, we read the ninth word, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. The immediate context is like, don't say a lie, don't lie about a person in the midst of a court of judgment. Don't speak to others untruths for the purpose of condemning another, condemning your neighbor. Presumably in an effort for the judge or more commonly the community to rule in your favor or to see you favorably. So the prohibition is against not telling untruths for the purpose of condemning your neighbor, for the purpose of twisting judgment in your favor or against them, one way or the other. Whether, whether it's you just want to be against them and so you want to twist the judgment against them, or in twisting the judgment against them, it benefits to your favor in some sort of way. Listen, our propensity to speak about others in ways that get what we desire, whether that desire be a favorable ruling, prestige, maybe just get us out of trouble, or get us something that belongs to them, or even revenge masked often as justice, led the nation of Israel to install regulations against speech that corrupts judgment. In Leviticus it says, You shall not go around as a slanderer, one who uses words to, to, um, to break relationship, to, to demonstrate um, the, the lack of integrity of another person, to, to break and, and destroy another's um, uh, reputation. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life, the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shan't go around slandering. You can't stand up against your neighbor to take his life. A single witness, it says in Deuteronomy, shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. One person's word doesn't condemn another person. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established, even the initial charge. Not only can you not condemn someone just because somebody else says something, unless two or three people give evidence that that something is true, there's not even a charge to to be levied. If a malicious witness, says Deuteronomy, arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and before the judges. If somebody, a witness, comes up to to give a malicious account, then both the witness and the one that they're witnessing against have to stand in judgment. And the judges shall inquire diligently, says Deuteronomy, 
And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. If what he said is untrue, then whatever he was trying to get done to his brother will be done to him. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest of you shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You shall not pity the one who gets the consequences that they are trying to levy against another. It shall be life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. Now, that's probably not the context we're used to hearing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is it? Right? Usually, it's you did the wrong, you took my eye, so now I get to take your eye. They took your tooth, so now we get to take their tooth, right? It's usually the statement is of equitable judgment. It's in the context that something has been taken from us, rather than equitable judgment being that through our words, if our words are malicious and false, that what we are making efforts to take from our fellow humans will be taken from us. That if the words we use are malicious or false, if they're meant, if it's speech that corrupts the judgment of others, the judge, the community, then what we speak in effort to try to get something will be the thing that is taken from us. So as the rule of categories contends, We've talked about that a few times. The ninth word condemns not only a false testimony in a formal place of justice, but any speech that corrupts judgment, whether your own or someone else's. Speech that corrupts judgment is a rather pervasive, rather pervasive thing, right? It includes speech that we might call lying. We all kind of know that, right? Like we get that, lying, false witness. If I'm not really telling a lie, then I'm not, I'm not bearing false witness. But it also includes slander. Again, saying something untrue to damage the reputation of another. And that's what slander is. And all throughout our scriptures, slander is condemned, even as we saw in Leviticus 19. It also includes gossip, which is sharing information that may or may not be accurate. Gossip doesn't have to be completely untrue, but it's meant to influence the way of thinking of someone else. Gossip is, whether it's true or untrue or half true, is always told to influence someone else. Whether to influence someone else about the person you're talking about or about yourself. You're one in the know. You're one that, that has information. You're one that likes to talk about things, whatever it is. And listen, like that kind of gossip is a pretty seductive thing. The proverb says, the words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Like, we're, pr we're all prone. If maybe you feel like we're not so prone to lying, slander, eh. Like, like I could probably get away with, you know, saying things in a way that, that doesn't really slander someone. But when it comes to gossip, we're all tempted into this, right? To speak things that may or may not be accurate, but to speak them in a way to influence someone else's thinking about another person or about me, right? I'm sharing information. I'm sharing thoughts. I'm sharing things not for the sake of the good of anyone other than my own good and nobody else. But corrupting speech also includes what's called, at least in our modern day, othering. Othering. When you secure your own identity by distancing or stigmatizing someone else's identity. 
And if that sounds a little too weird for you, like, do you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? Where Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee who goes into the temple and his stands at the back of the temple and prays. And what does he pray? Thank you, God, that I'm not like that person right there, that tax collector, who's a horrible human being, does horrible things, is not worthy of, any, of anything. Thank you, Lord, that I am not at all like that person. And then what does the tax collector pray? Lord, God, have mercy on me, right? What the Pharisee is doing is othering. He looks at a person, and to secure his own identity, like he doesn't say, Lord, thank you for letting me be a righteous person, one who happens to know the law and live the law and follow the law. That's not a bad prayer. That's not a bad thing to thank the Lord for, right? Our Psalms are full of that. Lord, we love your laws. Your word is written on my heart, and I follow it. Step in and step out. Like, that's not a bad thing to pray. That's not a bad thing to thank the Lord for. But he doesn't thank the Lord for what is good and true in his own heart. He thanks the Lord for what he's not in that person and says what he thinks that person is, stigmatizes that person. When in reality, what is the other person? The other person is actually the one who's walking whose heart is broken before the Lord, who is longing for the mercy of the Lord. He speaks for another's heart, right? And that's really what othering is. It's this, this building yourself up at the assumptions that you have about other people. And that, in our scriptures, is a form of corrupting speech. It creates a judgment in your heart against them. And you seem to be acting as judge for them. Right? Because that's what the Pharisee's doing, isn't he? Like, I know, I know that person's heart can't be good. But my heart's right. Corrupting speech also includes stereotyping. Creating characters of others rather than contact with others, right? It's kind of like othering, but, like, but it's a little less like you versus them. Right? Like, we create stereotypes of people in essence, to keep us away from actually having to deal with people. And when we create stereotypes of people, when we use stereotypical language or we talk about people in stereotypical ways, we are creating judgments in our own heart or at least affirming judgments in our own heart. And at minimum, we are creating and and reinforcing the judgments about those people to others, right? It's corrupting judgment. Corrupting speech can also be exaggerating. Start stating something as a better or worse than it really is. Like some exaggerations are fun, right? Like Cohen tells a story of the fish that he caught, and it goes, the fish may have been this big, but by the 14th time it's told it's about this big, right? Like, that never happened, buddy, I know, I know. Yeah, it's okay, we, we do it on time. Yeah, yeah, it was this big, it, it was this big, this big. You know, it was good, right? Like, there's a piece, like, I'm not saying, like, you can't, you can't have fun with some stories at times. But in truth, if we think about it, like, exaggerating often happens in moments of pressure. When we're wanting someone to think differently about us. Or we're trying to convince somebody to make a different judgment towards us, right? When we, when we exaggerate things, we state something as better or worse than it really is. We're trying to win an argument or win favor or win whatever, right? So usually when we exaggerate, it's for the purpose of, again, corrupting judgment, not just having a fun story of giant fish from the, from the pond. And lastly, corrupting speech can also be assumptive opinionating. 
Now, I totally just made that, the, that phrase up. Like, I don't, I don't know that that exists, right? But listen, saying what we think or even what we feel without consideration of what is actually true is corrupting speech and, according to our Proverbs, really foolish. Here's what Proverbs 18 says. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, no pleasure in actually seeking out what is true, no pleasure in trying to figure out what is actually real, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool takes pleasure not in the labor of seeking out truth, but only in expressing what they feel or what they think. And this is what the proverb says just two verses later. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are snares for his soul. It doesn't just get you in trouble with your relationships. Corrupted speech does. It actually entraps your own soul. That's why it's a part of the ten words, right? Because it's not just how it gets you in trouble with others. It actually begins to degrade your own soul. So, but consider what that means for the words we speak and the words we consume daily. How many, how much of our ordinary conversing with our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, if you can go to the next slide, Amber, that'd be great. How, how much of our ordinary conversing, Amber, can you go to the next slide? Thanks. <laughs> She's doing double duty back there. <laughs> How much of our ordinary conversing with our spouses, coworkers, or friends, how much of our typed conversations, read or reposted conversations, podcasted, streamed, or watched conversations would fall under one of these descriptors? No, like I think, go, can you find the slide that just has, there we go, perfect. So how much of what we consume and participate in would fall under one of these labels during a regular day? If we're just honest. We live in a world of words, and they are everywhere, right? The trouble is, there's this old rabbinic quote that reminds us of the trouble of, and the, the um, danger is probably not the word, but the, at least the, the reality of why we should pay attention to this. The old rabbinic quote says this. It says, slander kills three. The ones who speak it, again, it entraps their soul, Right? The one to whom it is spoken, because it degrades their the reputation. A reputation is a treasure. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like gold. It's hard to get back when it's lost, right? But it also kills the one who listens to it. Again, as the Proverbs remind us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Even listening to words that are spoken for the purpose of corrupting judgment can kill our hearts and souls for God, for ourselves, and for one another. And so maybe of all the words that we've talked about, this is the one that has the most like, pragmatic to our daily living of all the ten words that we've, that we've engaged so far. Because in case we missed it, back in the regulation in Deuteronomy, or if, again, because we're prone, we just dismissed it as hyperbole, Speaking falsely about another, speaking that is intended to corrupt another's judgment to get what we want, is an evil that demands purging or eradication. Remember what the, 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 the verses of Deuteronomy said? That, that, that searching out the false witness and showing them to be false 
when that comes out, when they get what they were, what they're trying to give to the other, like that's an eradication of evil. And that we're not supposed to shy away from that because in doing so, this is how we get evil out of our own community and context. And so while it's easy to see how that applies to the court system, right? How can there be justice without truth after all, right? Justice is blind. We want truth. We want to weigh the, the, the scales of truth, all that, right? We, we can see how speaking true things in a court system makes sense. But when we, extra, when we pull that out, that standard, when we pull that standard to the court of public opinion, whether in mass or in a particular community, we may feel that that's a bit extreme, that, that calling these words evil calling living in these things evil and necessary to be purged might be a little over the top. But I think that's only the case when we forget how the story begins. The story begins. What is the action that leads to the breaking of bonds in our scripture? What's the first action? is, Is it not a false witness of a serpent? A lie that is essentially one speaking the heart of another whose heart is not his own. In case you forgot, like here's just what Genesis 3 says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, he said, again, using words, did, you, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was indeed good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruits and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, exposed. And they sewed fig leaves together and hid, made themselves loincloths. And as the story goes, they hid themselves from one another and from God. The enemy did not so much lie about the command, only that the commands, the heart of the command was false. The intentions of God were false. The presumptions of God were false. The character of God was not true. And he did so for the purpose to corrupt another's judgment in his favor for what he desired. That is why Jesus would say to those who don't see themselves in a place in need of hearing the truth about God in themselves, In John chapter 8, to those who think that they are no longer in the same place as the garden, but have, like us, got a long ways from that. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus says? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. There's something about the power of words, the importance of words, and maybe just the fact that most most of our ways of building life and life good is through words and not as much through deeds. Deeds are a part of it for sure, right? But we probably use more words than we do actions during the day. There's something about the truth of that 
that makes the way we speak and what we speak, the things we listen to and why we listen to them, super important. Super pivotal to living life free or living life bound. If the ninth word prohibits corrupt speech, prohibits speech that, again, corrupts for the purpose of judgment, to change and manipulate judgment, it is a directive then to what? What's the opposite of speech that corrupts? The ninth word doesn't just prohibit, it's also a directive that empowers us to speak the truth in love. To love is to will the good of another. That was what Thomas Aquinas said. That's what uh, philosopher and theologian Michael Novak says, but he expands on that, expounds on that comment. He says, love is, is not only to will the good of the other, but to will the good of the other as other. That is, love is not sentimental. It's not restful in illusions, but watchful, alert, ready to follow evidence, what is true. It seeks the real as lungs crave air. If we really love, when we truly love ourselves, our neighbors, our enemies even, and our God, we won't rest in illusions. We won't be satisfied with half-truths, false truths. But rather we pursue truth as naturally and as normally and as vigorously as we pursue breath. The Apostle Paul helps us here too as he's done with anger and fidelity and taking responsibility. In his letter to the Ephesians, he says, what this adds up to then, if all this is true, if words are important, if how we speak is important, it, this, our speaking can either be death or life. Our life, someone else's life. Our death, someone else's death. And what this all adds up to then is this. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to one another after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Watch the way you talk, Paul says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. No corrupting talk. No false witnessing. No words, speech that twist judgment. The judgments of our hearts or the judgments of another's hearts. But only such is good for building up. Such as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve God, Paul says. Don't break his heart. Isn't that what happened in the first, first part of our story? A grieving of God and a breaking of his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing you is the most intimate part of your life. This, this, this God living in us, being one with us, coming into us, empowering us, making us a part of His life, making us fit for Himself. Let's not take that gift for granted. Instead, make a clean break with all cutting and backbiting, over-the-top and slanderous talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive Forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God and Christ forgave you. When we love ourselves, our neighbors, our enemies, and our God, our speech has the power to make life good. That's a pretty exciting thing, right? 
Again, the, the counterbalance in these 10 words is while they prohibit us, they also empower us, right? That yes, speech can. The words we use and the words used towards us can bring death, but they can also bring life. If we're kind and considerate, yes. Our speech should be kind and considerate. But did you notice what Paul said? It's not just a kind and considerate speech. Because I think this is where sometimes we fall into the trap, at least those of us, a lot of us in the church world, right? We get that our speech is meant to be kind and, um, and uh, again, sensitive. And so we worry about saying things in ways that will be taken wrongly or that might offend or that might hurt and all that kind of stuff, which is good. Like we want to be gentle with our speech. That's a good thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But sometimes that way of speaking keeps us from actually speaking what is true, Right? And so Paul says, not just to speak with kindness and sensitivity, but to speak with words that are fit for the occasion. That is, to use speech that's not too hard or too soft, but speech that is true and right for the moment. To use speech that actually is what's needed in the moment, which requires us to what? To be attuned to God's voice to be willing to listen before we speak. Because listen, if we speak super quickly, sometimes we speak out of ignorance or arrogance, right? And we don't use the words in the ways they're meant to be used. Or maybe we speak out of fear. But when we take the moment to ask the Lord for the words to say, to ask the Spirit, who according to, to Jesus and John's gospel is given to us so that when we are able to testify, when we're able to speak, we can actually speak words that are true to help us with what we're supposed to say. And listen, I know that's really hard in a day where instant speech is the thing, right? Whether it's a text message or a post, or maybe in the midst of a confrontation with your spouse or your wife or your coworker or your, your neighbor or whatever. Like, it's hard in the moment to take a step back and take a breath. It's easy to just quickly jump in and respond. But our words have a lot of power. They have the power to bring life or to bring death. The death, death to others or death to ourselves. Life to others or life to ourselves. So what if before we spoke, we prayed, we thought, we breathed? So that when we speak, our words might be seasoned with grace. That even if what we have to say is hard, because sometimes it is, even if sometimes what we have to say won't be accepted, because it won't, even if what we have to say feels more like a wound, because it is, because sometimes a wound from a friend is what's needed, that even when we have to say those things, even if when we have to reveal those kind of truths about another, we do so with grace. Because we've received grace. For a moment we breathe in the truth that every breath we take, every time that we wake, every morning that we wake, according to to Peter, right, is that we wake into a world of grace. That it's God's patience and mercy towards us that life continues. So that none 
will perish, but all will reach life full and forever, right? So that means if we wake tomorrow, we wake into God's continued grace towards us. Can we say that the words we use and the words we listen to fit that description? In all honesty. Well, let's think about it. For a few minutes... We're going to allow the Spirit to examine our hearts and the words we use to make a life. Again, self-examination is not the best. Where we tend to over-condemn over, um, or under-condemn, we tend to over-pump um, ourselves up or under-pump ourselves up. So what we're looking here is not for some sort of, like, you're examining your words. Like, let me go through the list of all the things I said today and how I said them, Right? Well, instead, we're asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, to examine our hearts, to know us, God to know us, and in God knowing us, to show us what's both good and what's off, what is true in its positiveness and what's true in its negativeness, right? Because, listen, what God knows is He knows our beginning and our end. And while right now in the moment we may feel the pressure of being wrong in the middle, right? Being not whole and complete in the middle. God already knows our finish. He doesn't feel that same pressure. When He knows the things about us and reveals the truth about us, even if that truth is not a truth that we really want to, to deal with, He's not dealing with it as if this is the thing that's going to pivot your life. He's dealing with it as, I've seen your whole life. I've numbered your days. I know they're beginning their end and everything in between them. So let me walk with you through this. Let me help you see what I see and be who I see you and know you to be. That's what Psalm 139 has taught us to do over the years, isn't it? So for a minute, before you answer, like, go into these questions, just take a minute to ask the Spirit to bring to mind the answers. And if you don't have an answer, then that's okay. But listen and wait for the Lord to bring these up. Again, don't start cataloging all the conversations you had this week, all the things you listened to this week, or anything like that. Let the Spirit lead you to these things believing, again, that God wants you to know yourself as He knows you. And what He wants you to know about yourself is what you need to be able to walk into whole and holiness. So, the questions you'll ask, in what ways do you use and consume language that corrupts judgment? That fits that list in some sort of way? In what ways do you participate in it or consume it? And then, how can your speech fit the occasion? How can it build bonds rather than break them? So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to give us, we're going to have about five minutes of quiet to ask the Spirit these questions. And then we'll continue with communion together. Father, it really is an incredible thing that you have given us the power of death and life, at least in some sort of way. While we don't have it in the way you have it, to just speak and life comes, to just speak and life ends, in some ways, by your grace, in your mercy, in your good design, you have given us, shared with us a part of yourself the power to speak in ways that create a world good or not. 
So I pray, Father, as ones who um, sometimes don't, don't steward that, um, that gift so well, that you would lead us into fullness of that. Lord, that you would show us in ways, maybe in ignorance, maybe in hurt, maybe even in pride as well, in which we use speech to create a life good for us, but not good for others. Lord, and as you show us our hearts and where there are grievous ways within us, may you also show us, Lord, lead us on the way ancient and everlasting to be and become the men and women you have made us to be for our good and for your glory. I thank you for friends who are willing to have this conversation together. Phyllis, lead us in your spirit, we pray.